Okay, I think the only significant announcement is that we will have our uh, communion service this coming Sunday, the first Sunday of the month, and that is because the second Sunday of the month I will be out of town and we will be leaving after church this Sunday to go to uh, Israel. And so then uh, I'll, be, I'll be here virtually next Tuesday night with a le- next lesson in First Thessalonians. And then on the Thursday night next week and the rest of the time I'm gone, Ray Mondragon, who is one of the professors at Chafer Seminary, will be here. And I don't know what his topic is, but once I get that, uh, he's teaching in Kiev right now, and they're wrapping things up. So pray for uh, Jim Myers and pray for those uh, there at the end of this semester. And Jim will be leaving, flying out next Tuesday morning to come here. So uh, pray for them and their travels as well as for everybody on the, uh, on the uh, Israel trip. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, our time in God's word, we need to make sure that we are in a position to enjoy our relationship with the Lord, walking by the Spirit, walking according to the Spirit, walking in the light, and that this is a term of close fellowship with God. When we sin, that close fellowship is broken, but when we confess sin, we're forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness, and then we can enjoy that relationship with God as we study His Word. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's a wonderful time we have that we can enjoy fellowship, communion with you around your word, learning to think as you think, learning to worship you, learning who you are, and learning who we are. And Father, that you have uh, made it possible for us fallen sinful creatures to uh, worship you, to be adopted into your family, to have eternal life, Father, just beyond anything that we can imagine. And Father, we are so grateful for our eternal salvation and all the grace blessings that you have given to us in this church age. Now, Father, we pray that you would Help us to understand the things that the Scripture teaches and that they might uh, change, transform, deepen our understanding of who you are, that our relationship, our walk with you will be uh, even more robust. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Just a little bit in terms of review, as we're studying worship coming out of our study of 1 Samuel, or excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter Uh, chapter 7 with the movement of the ark into Jerusalem and going to the background that's given in more detail in 1 Chronicles 15 and 16. Uh, We're studying about worship, and so we're focusing right now on what we find in Isaiah chapter 6 and looking at additional passages that will open up our eyes and expand our understanding of what is taking place Uh, in Isaiah chapter 6, and especially how that should impact our understanding of of worship. We have looked last time, the focus was on understanding the fear of God. And so we looked at a number of passages walking our way through the Old Testament, observing how when creatures, humans, fallen human beings come into contact with God— The dominant mental attitude is one of fear, but it's not fear in the sense of terror. It's fear in the sense of the the corrupt coming into contact with God who is absolutely pure and holy and righteous and and, and the exposure of our sin. And at one 
in one sense we want to draw back and pull away because uh, we know how um, how those who have been in God's presence have some have died because of the way they have profaned the holy things of God as Uzzah did in transferring the ark uh, to Jerusalem but yet at the same time we are drawn to him so we started off in the garden of eden with adam and eve and that when god after they had eaten of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil when god walked in the garden they ran they hid from him and when god asked them why he said because we were afraid we looked at job and how Job had wanted to question God, and as God appeared to him and began to ask him this series of rhetorical questions to expose his, his, his lack of knowledge, his lack of understanding of the universe, how God in his omniscience understands all things and can order all things, yet Job was unable to comprehend even the least little bit of God's planning for the, for the universe as a whole, Job pulled back and recognized that that he should just shut his mouth. Uh, We looked at episodes with Abraham and Jacob in Genesis uh, 28, 16 to 17, when Jacob was having uh, a dream and seeing a stairway that went from uh, the ground to heaven, angels ascending and descending. And then when he woke up, he realized he was in the presence of of the angels and had had this vision of heaven and he was he was terrified we looked at passages with the israelites skipped over a couple i'll begin with one of them tonight we then went to the new testament and looked at peter james and john in matthew 17 1 through 8 and especially verse 6 where where there was a they were also terrified and when john the apostle john on patmos the apostle john who is referred to as the beloved disciple, closest one to Jesus, and he just falls down on his face as if dead uh, before the Lord Jesus Christ in Revelation 1.17. All of this is to give us background and understanding of what is going on uh, here in Isaiah chapter 6. We see that in Isaiah 6, there is a Uh, vision that occurs for Isaiah where he is in the temple and God uh, miraculously opens up a some sort of portal between the earthly temple and the heavenly temple and as uh, Isaiah sees the heavenly temple he sees a seraphim uh, with six wings over the throne of God uh, remembering that God is enthroned among the cherubim who are over the Ark of the Covenant, and the seraphim seem to be a similar or- order of angels, and they are crying to one another, uh, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And a, just a brief review, when we think about the word holy, we need to think about the word distinct or unique and how that applies to all of God's uh, attributes, and we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, later on this evening. That the whole earth is full of His glory, and that word has to do with His importance, His significance. That God is the uh, the person, the being without whom there is nothing. Everything is dependent upon Him. We can go to Colossians chapter one, verse seventeen, talking about how the Lord Jesus Christ holds all things together, so that without God's constant care and holding everything together and giving existence to all things at every nanosecond, if He were withdrawn, that then everything that's created would disappear and be gone. God is central and the most important. Uh, being to all things. And so when we give glory to God, what we're doing is expressing how central, how important, how significant God is in our lives and why he should be that way for everyone. I pointed out that the word holy is a word that means distinct and unique. God says in Isaiah, his ways are not our ways, neither are his thoughts our thoughts. And so he, he is not he is only analogous to that which we see in creation. 
He is not the same. There is nothing, there is no one that is comparable to God. So he is unique in his sovereignty, in his righteousness, justice, love, and eternal life. There is none like him. We can't, it, it, you, you've seen a lot of people try to develop analogies that uh, to portray God, especially the Trinity. None of them do it because they are all finite. They are all part of creation. And God is unique and distinct and totally apart. So there, there hasn't yet been an analogy that anyone uses that comes close to truly representing the, the Trinity. They're, they're just, there's flaws in every single one of them because there is nothing that is three in one. There's nothing that has one essence, yet three persons. Uh, so that they are spoken of as an absolute indivisible unity, but also three distinct persons. There's nothing that fits that. So that's part of his holiness. We looked at uh, Isaiah 6.3, and then we learned that as um, the angels are worshiping, singing, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, then the, the Lord God of hosts, then the temple was filled with smoke. The doorposts are shaken. It is, it is as if there is an earthquake, earthquake. And then we see this response of Isaiah, which is what we're going to focus on more uh, tonight. He says, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And the response that this uh, exhibits is a response of fear. And that is why we studied what we looked at last time. Now, before we go forward, I want to look at one other, or a couple of other passages that I've, uh, that I've skirted but are related to this. And one is in Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Psalm 139 is is a tremendous psalm on the attributes of God, a meditation on the attributes of God by David, and it has a lot of implications as well as application. I think when I think of this, I think of being when I was a a young man in college and I was a counselor up at Camp Penile. At night we would uh, as a cabin counselor, we were to have a time of devotions with the with the campers, and I one of the first things I remember really studying because I thought that that was um, was was something important for the kids to learn about is who is God, and I would work my way through Psalm 139, and so this is a tremendous psalm, and as we look at at Psalm 39. Psalm 139, rather, it is broken down at the very beginning. I'm not going to go through the whole thing or spend a detailed study of this, but it begins with a meditation on God's omniscience, and that's covered in uh, the first six verses. And then in verses 7 through 12, we have a meditation on God's omnipresence. And I'm merely using this as an illustration of God's holiness in his omniscience and in his omnipresence. God is unique. He is distinct in his knowledge, and he is distinct in his omnipresence. And David begins by saying, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. And what he means by this is that there's that he's going to develop is that there's nothing about him that God doesn't know. See, what happens with Isaiah is when Isaiah comes in the presence of God, he, he there there is this brilliant light. God is light, John John says in the New Testament. There's this brilliant light that exposes everything there is to expose in Isaiah. That's the same thing that Adam and Eve realized when God came uh, came to the garden. There were no secrets. Nothing is hidden. 
And so that is what David points out, that, that in his uh, poetic fashion, he is expressing the parameters. Are, actually, there are no parameters for God's knowledge. You have searched me and known me. And so he then uses what is called merisms. Merisms um, are when you use opposites to describe a totality. Like if you say, I've been working day and night. What you mean is I've been working all the time. God creates the heavens and the earth. That means God created everything. There's nothing that doesn't belong to either the category of the heavens or the category of the earth. And so these are mirrorisms. So it's, used, it's expressing two things in terms of their opposites to talk about the totality of something. So David says in verse 2, You know my sitting down and my rising up. That pretty much covers everything. We're either sitting down or we're rising up. That covers every aspect. God knows everything about where we are and what we are thinking. You understand my thought afar off. From no matter how far you may be in distant heavens, you know everything that goes on between my ears. You know every thought, the clean and the unclean the righteous and the unrighteous, that which is uh, desirous of serving you and that which isn't. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down. So as we come to the uh, third verse there, uh, it ends by saying, and are acquainted with all my ways. So we see sitting down. We see rising up. You comprehend my path and my lying down. So we have sitting down, lying down, rising up. That pretty much covers everything. You um, you comprehend, uh, uh, or excuse me, you understand my thought. You're acquainted or you know all my ways. Everything I do, everywhere I go, you understand all of it. There's not a word on my tongue, in verse 4, there's not a word on my tongue but behold, Lord, you know it all together. He knows every single word that comes out of our mouth. How does Isaiah respond to that? Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. The words, the conversation uh, that comes out of my mouth is, is unclean. I, I, I'm guilty of sin to the worst degree. There, David says, there's not a word on my tongue, but behold, Lord, you know it all together. And then he says, you have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. And that talks about how God uh, protects us. He always, he has put this hedge around us and laying his hand upon us isn't a negative, it's a positive. He is the one who is as Jesus says, you hold us in, his, in your hand. So he is the one who protects us. And so his conclusion is, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Uh, it is high. I cannot attain to it. That is the holiness of God. God is so distinct from anything in our frame of reference that we cannot imagine it. As we explore what all of these attributes mean, when we think about God, we reach the limit of our finite understanding, and we have barely begun to scratch the surface in understanding anything about God. We can understand in his word what he has revealed to us about himself, but we can't understand him comprehensively. We can understand him in part, but we can't comprehend him in the whole. And that's just his knowledge. Then in terms of his presence, we use the word omnipresent, which means that God is present everywhere. He is present to every molecule of his creation in as full a way as he is to every other molecule in his creation. Okay, he is as pr fully present with me all day long and all night long as he is with you all day long and all night long. And with millions of other people, the planet has six billion people, whether they're believers or unbelievers, God is as present to every one of them, as fully present to them 
in North Korea or South Korea or Brazil or the United States or Fiji, God is as present to them, fully present to them, as he is to anyone else. We just can't even touch what that means. It's infinity applied to his presence. So David says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I go? Is there any place in the universe that I can go where you're not there? He says, where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the place of the dead, behold, you are there. It's not hell. That's how the King James, New King James translates it. That's that's a Nordic word that doesn't have anything to do with what is being expressed in the Hebrew. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Again, notice how he moves in both of these sections from contemplating the abstract attribute of God to where it relates to his security and his protection and God's provision. Remember in verse 5 in the first part he said, you've hedged me behind and before and laid your hand on me. That's God's security and protection. His knowledge leads to my security and my protection. His presence then does the same thing. Even there, uh, your hand uh, and hand and arm often and when it refers to God is a metaphor for his power and his protection. Even there, your right hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide me from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. That's the summary. What he says in verses 11 and 12 is that darkness can't hide me from you. It is the same as the light. You see through everything. Therefore, you always are watching me. You are always protecting me. And then he goes on to talk about his personal creation and relationship with God, the next verses. But that goes beyond what what we're looking at here in terms of worship. So you see what David is doing uh, in his own way of worshiping God. He is writing out a meditation, a reflection of his thoughts. And that is talking, uh, that is part of what it means to, to worship God, to contemplate who he is and his provision, his protection, and his uh, security for us. Now, when we come to Isaiah 6, we see an interesting scene here. And it is a scene that relates to the heavens. And we see the throne room of God. We see the throne of God high and lifted up in verse 1. We see it surrounded by these six-winged creatures called seraphim who cover their face with two, their um, uh, their feet with two, and with two they fly, and then they sing this refrain, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now this produces this response in Uh, this response in Isaiah. But before I go there, I want us to look at a parallel scene, just thinking about, or talk about a couple of verses first, just thinking about this concept. As, As Isaiah is confronted with this presence of God and says, woe is me for I am undone, he is expressing this fear, this, this, this awe that is there. And I want you to share, want to talk about this for just a second. You are familiar with the fact that if you read in older literature, you will hear a phrase that sounds terribly antiquated and obsolete today, referring to somebody who's a devoted Christian as a God-fearer, one that fears God. And that is an appropriate term, but it is one that has fallen on disfavor today because it emphasizes this distinctiveness about God that his holiness strikes fear in us. 
And that's not something modern man wants to think about. We want to think about how God is a loving God. We want to think about how God is a God who has forgiven us. He's a God who's reconciled us. Yes, all of that is true, but not at the expense of the fact that God is a holy and a righteous God. He was just as loving in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. And this this aspect of God and the importance of fearing God is brought out many times in the New Testament. So let me just go through a couple of passages that emphasize this. Matthew 10, 28. Jesus is talking to the disciples. We're going to be doing a study later in the summer on discipleship, what it means to be a disciple. And one of this, these things has to do with our total orientation to God's uh, person and serving him uh, and not being afraid of what man can do to us. In Matthew ten twenty eight, Jesus tells his disciples, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. Now, I'm not going to go through an in-depth study of Gehenna. This is often misunderstood in the Gospels. We have this word hell, and as soon as you use the word hell, people immediately think of the lake of fire and that this is talking about eternal condemnation. Now, if you do a study of the word Gehenna, and there are detailed studies that I've done in Matthew that you can take a look at on the on the internet. But Gehenna is the Greek uh, form of the Valley of Hinnom in the Old Testament. There are three valleys. You can hold up your three fingers like this, and that lay them over a map of Jerusalem, and you have three valleys. You have um, the Valley of Hinnom on the left. The middle one was called the Valley of the Cheesemakers. It's pretty much been, or the Tyropean Valley. It's pretty much been filled in today, so you don't notice it so much when you're there. And then the the one on the right is the Kidron Valley. Your fingers are pointing north. And so they all come together south of Jerusalem. The Valley of Hinnom in Hebrew is called Gehinnom. Gay is the Hebrew word for valley, and Hinnom was the name of the person for whom it was named. So it comes over into Greek as Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom. Now, what happened in the Valley of Hinnom? Well, if you go back and you do a word study and you look this up in Isaiah and Jeremiah, this was where the uh, the, the Israelites, later in their history, especially under uh, well, Ahab was in the north, but you get into especially Manasseh in the south and others. This is where they committed child sacrifice. Now, this was horrific. This was incredibly horrific. They had borrowed this from these Canaanite cultures that had surrounded them. And in the ancient world, the Canaanites were among the most uh, uh, abominable people. They, they Their sins were centered around a highly sexualized worship of of uh, uh, Baal and of Ishtar or Astarte and uh, the various fertility aspects of their religious system. And they were syncretistic. Uh, you know, remember when we read in the Old Testament about the Canaanites, we read about the Hivites and the Girgashites and the uh, um, you know, there's the people of Jezreel and all these different uh, different groups. Well, they had all amalgamated into a group that was just generally called uh, the Canaanites, not unlike the melting pot of the United States of America. It were made up of people from all kinds of ethnicities, and that's what the Canaanites were. And they they were a fairly... A wealthy culture because they dominated the trade routes going through the the uh, Middle East, and they developed this religion that was just horrific. There was all of this emphasis on sexuality and sexual activity in order to promote prosperity, so they were very materialistic. And one of the things that they did in order to placate the gods was to literally burn their infants alive in the arms of, depending on who you're reading, whether it's the Moabites or whomever, the Chemosh or, or um, 
Moloch, and these these idols were large statues that had an open furnace area underneath the arms of the god, and they would fill it with uh, wood and build an enormous fire, and then they would put their living infant into the arms of Molech, and he would be burned alive. They did this in the Valley of Hinnom. And God brought an announced judgment on them through Jeremiah that where they burned these infants alive, that is where they would, God would mete out the judgment of them when the Babylonians came and destroyed Jerusalem. So that was not an eternal judgment. It was a judgment on Israel in history. It was a discipline of God. It wasn't the eternal judgment of God. So the fires of Gehenna were the fires, originally the fires that burned their children alive. And then secondly, it was the fires of the Babylonians that cremated their bodies and destroyed Jerusalem in 586 B.C. And so the imagery was not of eternal punishment, but of temporal punishment, of historical punishment in the life of Israel. So what the warning you get in the New Testament is that the Valley of Hinnom, or Gehenna, represents God's punishment on Israel in time, not in eternity. It's not a punishment for them as unbelievers. It's a punishment on them as his people and because of their disobedience to God. And so what what Jesus is telling his disciples here is don't be afraid of humans who can kill your body, torture you, persecute you, uh, put you in the into the lion's den of like Daniel, or put you in with the lions and the wild beasts in the in the Colosseum of Rome. Don't be afraid of them because they can't kill the soul. What you need to fear is God. See, he's talking to them as believers, so he's not threatening them with a loss of salvation. He's saying if you are disobedient to God and go back to paganism and pagan values, then God can destroy the body. Uh, the soul and body in Gehenna, in discipline right now. So it's a warning that we are to fear God and fear consequences of sin. Ephesians 5.21, we're to submit to one another. Remember the context here in Ephesians 5.18, we're told we're to walk by means of the Spirit, and then the result of that are the participles in the next verse that talk about uh, singing hymns and spiritual songs to God, giving thanks to the Lord uh, always for all things. And then by verse 21, we get this another participle, submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. And that controls the whole next section, which deals with the family. So we're to submit to one another in the fear of God. We are to be God-fearers in our homes. We're to be God-fearers about how we rear our children and our grandchildren. We are to be God-fearers in how we conduct our lives as employers and employees. We're to be God-fearers in our marriages and how we relate to our husbands and our wives. That's, this sets the tone for all those different passages that are coming up. So Ephesians 5.21, we're to submit to one another in the fear of God. This is a form of our worship, our individual worship. Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom, that is when Jesus returns and we'll be with him at the second coming and he establishes his kingdom. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence, and godly fear. See, this seems like such an old-fashioned idea today. We are to have the fear of God that motivates us to serve him with reverence and godly fear. Then we have 1 Peter 2.17, where we're told, honor all the people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. Once again, bringing our focus back, we're to fear God, who is the one who will uh, judge us, not in terms of our eternal salvation at the judgment seat of Christ, but we do have accountability there, and we are to fear him, and that should motivate us in everything that we do every day. And then Revelation fourteen seven, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come, 
and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. These are the angels who are singing praise to God in heaven. So they don't just sing holy, holy, holy. There's a few other things they sing, and this is one of them, to fear God. So the fear of God is very much a part of that worship, that individual worship that we have for him that goes on day in and day out. Now, I want you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, and we see a parallel picture of the throne of God. I often think that you can't really study one without looking at the other. Revelation chapters one, chapter 1 is an introduction. Revelation chapter 2 tells and 3 talks about these seven postcards of evaluation, their evaluation, their critical reports to each of these seven churches. And then chapter 4 talks about the future. And the reason for this is because uh, when um, Jesus is talking to John in Revelation 119, he tells him, write the things which you have seen. That's what John is seeing at that point. He has seen it. It's spoken of in the past tense when he sees this vision of the resurrected, glorified Lord Jesus Christ. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are present tense. That's the letters to the seven churches of Revelation and then the things which will take place after this. That comes into effect in Revelation chapter 4. And so I want to look there, Revelation 4, 1. John sees a door in heaven, and he goes. He hears a command to come up here, and so he goes up there to see the things that will take place after this. That connects right back to Revelation one nineteen, and when he comes into the throne of God, he sees a throne set in heaven, and on the throne is uh, one sitting, and it's reminiscent of the. A statement in Exodus 24:10, when Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the seventy elders of Israel go up into the presence of God on Mount Sinai, and they it says in Exodus 24:10, and they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. So there's a similarity there. In Revelation 4.4, we read, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their head. Now, who are these 24 elders? We've studied this in details when we went through Revelation. And the 24 uh, elders need to be identified first by understanding what these crowns of gold are, that there are two different words in Greek for crowns. The first word is the word diademos. We've sung, all hail the power according to the tune of the diadem. Okay, so you're familiar with that word. A diademos crown is a crown of royalty, the crown of a ruler, the crown of a king. That's not the word that's used here. In the ancient Greek world, when they developed the athletic competitions of the Olympics, they would give various awards in wreaths, and these wreaths would be made out of uh, laurel branches or oak branches or ivy branches, and they would eventually deteriorate. They were not made out of something that had permanence uh, because their, their winning was not something that was permanent. They had won this contest, but it wasn't a permanent thing. But those crowns were referred to as Stephanos crowns. So a Stephanos crown was an award for an accomplishment. It was a reward for having achieved something. And so these are 24 elders who have been rewarded for something. Now, why 24? In the, if you go back to Chronicles, David divided the Levites into 24 orders or 24 teams. You might think about it that way. And so as they, as the feast days came, he would pick a certain number 
from each team so that every one of those 24 orders would come and they would represent not only the rest of the Levites, but they would represent the people. And so it's it's like we have, uh, in Congress, we have our House of Representatives. And those representatives are chosen by uh, the electoral process, and they are sent to Washington to represent us. And we change them. Maybe every four, eight, 12 years, we change to someone else who represents us. Well, in, in the Old Testament, they would periodically change who, was, who the Levite was or the Levites were who were going to serve in the temple. And so you would have some one year, others another year. They would be chosen by lot. This is what's going on in Luke 1 when Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, is chosen by Lot to serve in the temple. He's, his, uh, he's part of his order representing him. So not all of them could serve at the same time because there were thousands of Levites. So it was just certain ones chosen at different days for that purpose. So that gives us a framework in the Old Testament that all of those serving as Levites couldn't serve at the same time, so just one or two, two or three or whatever it was, 10 or 15 from each order would go to represent the rest. So that's the background for understanding these 24 elders are there representing the church, the raptured, reward, rewarded, uh, resurrected, and rewarded church. So they are clothed in white robes, which are what is described in the seven letters to the seven churches as part of the uh, awards to the church is uh, white robes and the crowns of gold on their head. So they're being represented. They are representing uh, the church. Revelation 4, 5, we go on. In the throne, and from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. This is the same thing you have in other theophanies. For example, this is God on Mount Sinai. They have thunderings and lightnings and voices. And then the Holy Spirit is represented as seven lamps. Seven represents fullness. Fire represents illumination. And it's defined as the seven spirits of God. All of this is talking about the fullness of God, the Holy Spirit, in illumination at this time. And in verse 7, we read that it's surrounded also by these four living creatures. Now, these four living creatures have features that are like cherubs, and they are have features like cherubs. But I think they must be a distinct order. The cherubs had six wings. The uh, excuse me, the seraphim had six wings, and the cherubs had four wings. And so, what we see here is these four living creatures. A term "living creature," which is applied also to cherubim in um, in Ezekiel, but here. Uh, they have six, uh, the six wings like seraph, like seraphim, but they have these different faces, but not, but with the cherubs, each cherub had these four faces. Here you have four distinct creatures with four distinct, each one having its own uh, image. So the first living creature is like a lion, the second living creature is like a calf, the third living creature has a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. So they represent these, these various animals. But remember, one of the interesting things is these angelic beings are created long before God created lions and angels and eagles and human beings. These were there among the angels before there were any human beings created. And these four living creatures similar to the seraphim in Isaiah 6, surround the throne of God, and they do not rest day or night. There's a merism again. In other words, they never stop. This is ongoing, singing something very similar to what we have in Isaiah 6. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Very, very similar to what John was supposed to write. He is supposed to write what you have seen. You have going to write what is and what is to come. And so there's a connection there emphasizing the eternality of God.
Now, as we go through this, um, here's a, I just broke this down on the cherubs and the seraphs. Cherubim are the highest class of angels. They attend the glory, holiness, and majesty of God. Uh, they're described in Ezekiel 1, 5 to 14. They have four wings. God is enthroned upon the cherubs, on the two cherubs that are on the Ark of the Covenant. So they have a very high position. The term seraph comes from, means the burning ones. So that can be associated with the fire of God's purity, his holiness, his righteousness. Seraphim are burning ones or angelic incendiaries who are ablaze with the glory of God and continually announce his triune holiness, according to Isaiah 6.3. They have six wings. And then the living beings is a general de- designation of the angels who both direct the worship of God and express his judgments, as in Revelation uh, chapters 4 and in 14. Uh, they have six wings in Revelation 4 like seraphim, but faces like the description of cherubim in Ezekiel. So now in verse 9 of Revelation 4, we read, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever. So whenever they do this, so it's not like they do this all the time necessarily, but it's whenever they do this at these uh, specific times. There are three words that are emphasized there. They give God glory. Now, glory means what? It means the importance or the centrality of God. So to give God glory means to ascribe or to talk about or to describe why God is so important, why he is central to everything, what he has done that is at the core of all creation. So that's why you find what usually stated in these these passages. God created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. That is one statement. Another statement is that he has redeemed us and he has provided salvation for us. That It's on those two things, his creation and his redemption, that all of his glory uh, relates. So, And then honor is the respect, the obeisance that his creatures should give him because of who he is and because of what he has done. And thanks relates to uh, the gratitude to the one who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever. Then it goes on, it talks about the expression of this worship by the 24 elders who cast their crowns before the throne. And look at what they say. You are worthy, O Lord, to to receive glory and honor and power. Now back here, we saw glory and honor and thanks, gratitude. Here it's power. Now the word there is dunamis, which which as a primary translation word is usually translated power, but it also has that idea of power in relation to authority over his creatures. So he uh, it receives glory, that is, expression of his centrality and his importance, his weightiness in everything in life, honor, his respect to him, and the respect for his authority. Why? Because you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So this passage gives us another expression, many, many Years, centuries, however time is measured much, much later in heaven than what Isaiah sees. And yet they're continuing to sing and focus on the same things. The reason I point that out is because in contemporary Christian worship philosophy, the idea is you don't keep saying the same things or singing the same hymns because that gets boring. The reason it's boring is because we're fallen creatures and we have to keep fresh stimuli in a postmodern existential culture. If you go back into the Middle Ages and on through the Reformation, for hundreds of years they sang the same hymns that connected all the members of the body of Christ from one generation to another. They didn't have to have new stimuli every 15 minutes because their attention span has been destroyed by watching television and movies and living in an entertainment-based culture. And so 
the angels haven't had their concentration, which is essential to worship, destroyed by an entertainment culture, which is as bad as the Canaanite culture. Isaiah 6, 3, one cried to another saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. See how it echoes the same ideas that are sung in Revelation 4. But what is the response? What is Isaiah's response? Well, like those we studied last time, it's marked by by fear, by awe, by a self-realization. He's overwhelmed by what he sees. And just like all these other examples we've looked at, whether it's Adam or whether it was Abraham or Jacob or Moses who are the Israelites, they knew who they saw and the brilliance of his light exposes who they are. They understood God was holy and they were not. They understood that when righteousness is present, their unrighteousness is exposed and they shrink back. Isaiah recognizes his own corruption. He immediately recognizes he's awestruck with the presence of God, but he recognizes his own danger in being in the presence of God. He recognizes that his sin is completely exposed. He says, woe is me, a man of unclean lips and a people of unclean lips. He realizes how unworthy they all are to be in the presence of God. He's heard the song of the, or the statements of the seraphim saying God is holy and he realizes he is unholy. And so he cries out, woe is me for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He realizes his own corruption and the corruption of his people because he has seen who God truly is, the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, this is balance. It's not just pure terror. It's balanced by his understanding of who God is. And as expressed later in Isaiah... In Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen, for thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. Notice the high view of God here. God is speaking. He is the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Again, that emphasis on his distinctiveness. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place, the distinct place. It's a unique place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit. Now, the him who has a contrite and humble spirit is talking about creatures and what's required to be in right relationship with God. They should have a um, contrite and humble spirit. Uh, He says, uh, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would fail before me and the souls which I have made. So what we see here is that there is a recognition on the part of Isaiah. This is foundational to worship, a recognition of the need for cleansing because we're in the presence of a holy God. And so he says, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And so, first of all, there's the realization of the holiness of God and simultaneously the realization and exposure of his own corruption. But then God provides cleansing. That's what the Isaiah 57 passage is all about. God cleanses those who have a humble and contrite spirit, And so there's the depiction of of ritual cleansing as the the seraph flies to him with a live coal and touches it to his lips for purification. Now, these two terms, contrite and humble, are interesting. The first word, contrite, 
means to be low, to sink down, or, uh, excuse me, to be, um, that's the second word, uh, contrite is the second word, daka, on the right. It means dust, it means something that has been crushed, or something that has been uh, broken. Uh, for example, in Psalm 34:18, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. The second word, a humble, is from the word shafel, um, which means to be low or to sink. Now, in logical order, the first thing that is that happens with Isaiah is there's a humble response. Woe is me. He expresses his humility. He's not expressing arrogance. And then second in logical order is the recognition that he's a sinner, although together they happen simultaneously in his, in his experience. And he is fully aware of his fallen nature. Now this word for humble shows up in Proverbs 3.34. Surely he, referring to God, scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. Now, the Septuagint version of that verse, the Septuagint translation, is what is picked up in 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7, a passage we'll be getting to shortly in our study of 1 Peter, where Peter challenges the young people to be oriented to the authority of the mature believers in the congregation and the leaders in the congregation. He says, submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. So specifically, he singles out the young people because they tend to have a problem with authority orientation. But then he addresses the rest of this to everyone. It's, it's, it's like Paul in Ephesians 5.21 uh, where he says, submit to one another. And then he goes on to talk about husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And what he's saying there is husbands love your wives and because you're submitted to Christ, who is the head of the church. And then he says to the wives, submit to your husbands. And in our rebellious culture today, where we've rejected God's various uh, uh, organ, organizations of authority, whether it's government, whether it's family, whether it's uh, parents or children, we forget that we are to submit to one another. If we are submitting to one another, if we are loving one another, then it's absolutely no problem whatsoever for husbands to love your wives and wives to submit to your husbands. But if you can't follow the, these basic commands of submit to one another and to love one another, then you're never going to understand how it works in a marriage. And your marriage will never function because it's fundamental to just being a believer. We are to be uh, characterized by loving one another and by being submitted to one another. And so Peter says, yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility for God resists. And there it is. God is hostile. He makes war. He fights the proud but he gives grace to the humble. So the humble person, when confronted with the revelation of God, says, woe is me. The proud, arrogant person says, well, God, who in the world do you think you are to tell me that I'm doing wrong? That's the contrast. Don't tell me you don't know what I'm talking about. We all do that every time we sin. Verse 6, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time by casting, this is how we humble ourselves, is by casting all our care upon him because he cares for you. And this goes back to what is written in Leviticus, you shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God, I am the Lord. It all goes back to fearing God for I am the Lord. So I want to stop here because the next section takes us into understanding a number of key words that are used in relation to worship. And so we'll wait and get into that section uh, when we come back or when I come back from Israel in three weeks. 
Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things tonight and be reminded that we are to submit to your authority, that we are to love one another as Christ loved the church, not just husbands to wives, but each believer is to love one another as Christ loved the church, that we are to fear you and that we are to let that uh, sober fear dominate our thinking and control our decision-making about every area of life, what we say, what we do, and how we order our, our time and our priorities in everything in life. Father, we pray that you challenge what we've studied to expand our understanding of what it means to worship, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.